Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is the Curious Anarchy Podcast, and it's myself, Jermaine, and the wonderful Marky back once again with another episode of Brunch with Naomi Osaka. How are you, Mark? I'm great, actually. I'm really great. I'm, I, it's one of those days that you wish every day was like. Um, just oh, come, we've just come back from the semi-final England beating uh, Denmark. I did a podcast this morning with Jermaine, and I'm doing another one now. And we get a chance to talk to somebody who's keeping the spirit of punk rock alive, even though he's into a latter years. So in all three ways, I'm very happy. Very, very yes. happy. <laughs> Things to look forward to, eh? Indeed. Oh, it's, been, it's quite an exciting time. Please, it's a, you know, we've had years and years of, at the very least, medioc- mediocrity. In fact, that's probably the highlight was mediocrity. And now suddenly there's a buzz around that, that hasn't been for a while. So very exciting times. Looking forward to that. So on today's show, we have a, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Ollie uh-huh. Hibble. Um, you'll have to kind of give them the foray, the, the 411 um, on this one. As, See, uh, I don't Ollie, feel like Ollie. we should really, because I think Ollie's such a lure to himself. I think we're going to go on quite a journey with him today because he, he, um, he, he's he got many forks in many different um, dishes, so to speak. So it'll be quite interesting to just go on the, on the path with him, the different things he does. Um, there's just so much about him so interesting I think we should just what's that expression let the thing talk for itself you know so let's just get him on and, and get going you seem to be talking at the same time can you hear me yeah can I didn't hear you talk now until now You, I've just heard you now oh right okay yeah so um, just to sort of slightly preface this um, I met Molly uh, Molly Ollie Molly <laughs> It's changed his gender suddenly. Um, I'm sure there were guys called Molly too. Um, well, I'm not sure, but we can find out, certainly. More than likely. Um, but yeah, so I, I met, came across Ollie in uh, an anti-racism group. Same group that we met through, Mark. Yeah, indeed. Um, absolutely. In fact, it seems like this is uh, the alumni. Well, I mean, to be fair, Jermaine, you were quite a celebrity in that group because you did the live discussions. So... Like people could say they don't know me or they don't know Ollie, but they can't say they didn't know you because you were literally, you know, the the interviewer every single week. So, so everyone, including Ollie and I, could say, well, we definitely know Jermaine from the group, and we'd be lucky if Jermaine knew us. That was the reality. <laughs> I love the way that you kind of really pour on this sort of celeb status type thing. Like, <laughs> in that group, you were. I mean, let's be honest. You and Christian were the two characters who, who, like, even if you came in the group for just a week, you'd know those those two characters. <laughs> um, yeah. It was and I got the... to say, Jermaine, your your style of interviewing was. You know, there's there's a lot of TV interviews I could learn from you. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I've just sent Ollie the link now, so he should be okay. opening that up very shortly and joining us. Um, I have to say, to, from what I know about Ollie, is I know he, he's in a band or what? Oh, oh, oh! Here he is, he the man the himself, and he shall appear. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie, how are you? 
I'm good, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, lovely. Loud and clear. Welcome to the Curious Anarchy podcast. You are featuring with myself and Mark on the Brunch with Naomi Osaka series. So on this series, we have guests and we kind of just have a little bit of a chat. Um, I'm honoured to be here. Oh, I mean, I've got to say this, Ollie. We struggled to define you, so we didn't because <laughs> I just think you're a multifaceted person who who has so many different uh, strings to different bows. But if we'd have started, we'd probably still be going on and on. So we, we suggested to the listeners just to listen to the journey and, and enjoy. <laughs> well, I, that's very flattering. Um, yeah, I, I do some things. I'm not quite sure how well I do them all. Um, I think, I mean, I, I have to have a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, which is, uh, which is unfortunate, but also fortunate because I quite enjoy what I do. But I also paint, uh, I write, um, and I'm in a couple of bands. We do the music thing as well, so I'm very busy. I don't uh, idle time, shall we say? And you also have a family as well, right, Ollie? Yeah, yeah, I do. I've got. Um, well, I've I live with my partner and her two daughters. But I've got my own two girls who um, who live with their mom, and uh, yeah, they're amazing. I've uh, spent a lot of time with them. Uh, one of them, six, eldest Tiana is sixteen, so she's getting very opinionated, and we could have friends now, which is. Oh, really- hold on, Ollie. Ollie, you're very much a you know a lot of the, your activities are very sort of like male orientated, and yet you're in a household or two with mainly women. Mm. <laughs> Well, yeah. Um, I mean, in in our family here, well, in our, in my family, uh, there's my partner, my two daughters, her two daughters. We've got a horse which is female. Wow, female cats. So me and I mean, you're way you're way cat, beyond outnumbered, boys. aren't you? I mean, you're way beyond outnumbered. Oh man, I'm I'm uh, I'm way beyond that. Yeah, yes, I, I'm. Um, I don't know. I was going to say I'm dominated, but that could have different connotations well though, listen we our listeners have a fantastic imagination so please do say that and we can just roll <laughs> with that <laughs> I, I very much know my place uh, i'm in the minority um yeah so, you really are so, love- Ollie, let's start off at the beginning where like where did you grow up where did you go to school you know where how did the story begin well i was born in north london um Ooh. and was a clue from where. my bedroom window i could see the gun on the side of highbury oh so you were born in a very classy area okay cool yeah we like that <laughs> yeah um, but uh my uh my dad he um he he was uh, he, he's retired now he's still with us thankfully he he was a, a general practitioner he's a doctor so we moved wow. around when he first uh, started doctoring um yeah. And when I was four or five, I can't quite remember, I ended up in a very market town in Lincolnshire called Stout. Oh, wow. Um, you moved around the UK? Um, I, I moved from London and then from Oxford to Stamford. And I lived in Stamford till I was 18. Um, was that the whole family, sorry, did everyone move? Um, no, just me and my sister. Um, oh, right, okay. I've got two brothers and two sisters. Wow, and okay. So, yeah. so it was my mum and dad and me and my sister. 
uh, moved from Oxford to Stamford, and then my other sister was born, and then my two brothers are twins, and they they were born living in Stamford. Oh, so, yeah. so you're like, are you the oldest? I am the oldest. Yeah, I'm 51 this month. Wow! Congratulations. You're such a youngster. You're such a youngster. I th- do you know what it's really nice when people say that because most people sort of see when I was when I was much younger I thought by the time I was 50 I would be drawing my pension and uh, we all thought that mate we all yeah we under, under, under the tourists it's gonna be about 80 years old you're gonna get your pension um, well, if that if that's that, that yeah, exactly yes. Boris will have us working until we drop and then we'll exactly just be that. Kind of funneled off somewhere or catch corona. So, yeah, exactly. What were your influences growing up? Ollie, what were your influences growing up? Influences growing up? Well, I can tell you uh, this is this is probably the biggest influence in my life. I've always loved music. So, okay. I say, the first big influence I had in my life was ABBA. My mum was a phenomenal ABBA fan, and so wow. I grew up listening to that music. And it just really kind of just it it was so joyful and it really made me come alive and I used to listen to it over and over again. And growing up in the 80s, there was a lot of um, bands around that I wasn't particularly keen on. So it was trying to find something that I liked. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. when I was 11, I went to a... F- and um, I, was, I was shoved off into a room with the sort of oldest child from this family because I wasn't a baby that could sit quietly and look cute on the floor, but I was really <laughs> to be around the adults. So fortunately, they shoved me into a room with this sort of lad. I think he was about 15. His name was Justin, but I can't remember the family's surname. And at 11 years old, he played me the first Sex Pistols album. Wow. Never mind the bollocks. Never mind the bollocks. I'm glad you said it first because I didn't want to get caught out saying something I shouldn't. <laughs> this is no, a no, podcast. You're, right. you're, you're free to speak here. Yeah, this is a podcast, man. You can say what you like. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, I heard the So, no holes bars. Brilliant. Oh, well, I, I, I should relax a bit now because I do get a bit worried. I might say something that I will have to get edited out or uh, I'll get admonished. We, we don't edit the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I went on a radio show once and I asked them if it would be it would be edited when it was put out and they said no and I said oh why is that because it's kind of like a sort of uh, uh, open space for everyone to say what they want they went no we just don't know how <laughs> I think that sums us pretty much but um but the other thing is we're curious anarchists so so um, I know how to do it I know how to do it I just don't do it I think that it takes away the the rawness the authenticity Absolutely. I mean, only if you listen to some of our podcasts in the past, I mean, it's not just what people say, it's noises in the background, it's all yeah. sorts of things. I mean, if, if, oh, you, if you listen to the uh, one of the Who Is series, um, the one that I did with uh, Irene from IVC in Uganda, um, they were using a laptop and I think we got disconnected about three times during that. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, like there's, 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 no, there's, there's no limits here. No limits. We're, we're warts and all, basically. Oh, that's good. That's I, and I, th- I think life should be raw. I, I, I think life you know needs to be raw and unedited. There's yeah, too definitely. much. There's too definitely. much sterility in life. I think we, you know, we we don't have that opportunity to be raw and sort of getting on with things that we want to do rather than what people think we should do. But uh, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I mean, it's very good to talk about being raw and and mind the bollocks in the same sort of part of the conversation. Yeah. So that's, that's a good it, linkage. It, 
it was a great album and it changed my life. And I know people say, oh, I first heard this, but it literally did change my life. And I remember sitting in this bedroom thinking, I don't know what I want to do, but this is going to be something important. And it's going to be <laughs> something like this. I actually, I actually made my parents late leaving the party because, um, bearing in mind this was 1981, I was waiting for Justin to tape the album for me. And I oh, went wow. through this tape and I played it and played it. And I kind of begged, stole and borrowed, worked for as much money as I could get. And I actually went out and bought my uh, my first copy. I've now got behind me, you can't see now, I've got my records behind me. And I think I've got about six or seven copies of it now. Um, so for the sake for the sake of Jermaine and, and our worldwide audience, can you give us an idea of what it was about the album that you liked? It was just the music it was loud but it wasn't sort of it wasn't sort of shouty and but it was just so aggressive and so loud and so i mean i think it's perfect it's just perfect and the the, the lyrics the way it was sung it it just kind of opened my, my mind to all the different possibilities that you could have in music um it just you know the, the anger and I think when you're coming into your teens, you have that anger and you don't really know what oh, to do. absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And I was like, I know why I'm angry now. I know I'm listening to what they're saying. I know why I'm angry. I'm angry because I'm not happy with the way things are in the world. And so not only was it my my intervention, my, my, my entrance into music, it was also my sort of first dabblings of in politics as well. Hmm. Um, Explain that a little bit. Well, at that point in time, there was, um, I mean, we, we we were in the sort of Thatcherite era. Yeah, and, I remember. Yeah. I mean, I was always lucky. I mean, I, I can't say that I had, I was struggling. I mean, my old man was a doctor. My mum, we had a nice house. But I just, I was, I got a scholarship at the local grammar school and I hated it there. But at the same time, it wasn't the fact that I hated school. I just hated the way people were. And I didn't yeah. like the the way that there were some people who had absolutely nothing and other people who, who had so much. And there was no sort of common ground. And going to a grammar school, I met people who basically sort of both of their parents not even themselves their parents that always seems crazy to me you know you identify your social standing by the wealth of your parents i mean you know you know, it's not your money it's not your wealth it's someone else's but, but also the other thing around that is, is it wasn't even it wasn't even linked to your abilities so that just because someone would say more articulate or could do better sports that was no sign that they would be the people that you're talking about who had the money they might be the ones who had nothing yeah. It wasn't related to any merit, just the fact that no. they happened to be born to the left and not to the right or whatever. You know, that was the only difference. I think that's it. And it's, it's, it's you know, it's how much money they had. And so that was kind of about the world. And of course, then um, Thatcher took our milk away. And that was that just sort of, yes. <laughs> that was really annoying. And the whole sort of get them before they get you. How old were you at that point, Holly? Um, I, I, been getting on to sort of 12 or 13 years old okay yeah. um so what happened was jermaine just to let jermaine know uh, margaret thatcher 
up till then it was like part of the national curriculum was that every school every school classroom was given a crate of milk every morning so it ensured people had yeah enough protein and what have you and she I remember that in uh, infant and junior school okay so she removed it you see she actually mm. removed it across the classroom so a lot of people for example became unemployed for the first time at five years old because they were milk monitors uh, and it was all this was the image she had she, they were she was known as uh, Thatcher the milk snatcher yeah wow a horrible woman horrible now I just want to say quickly two two bits of background for what Ollie's just been saying um the Sex Pistols came to fame on the Bill Grande show it was a it was an afternoon chat sort of news program and he started chatting to me. He didn't know what they were. It was the first time the word punk had been used. And towards the end of the show, he started saying, oh, I like some of the girls that are here with you. And so he said, oh, you're a dirty fucker. And then he said, did you just swear? Would you like to say that again? And he was a bit drunk. And so they came out with a whole list of profanities. Yes. And he got him, he got him sacked and it made punk a household name. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know so how was he on the um, Bill Grundy show, Mark? No, no, I don't know how he got on. It was meant to be Queen. Oh, really? Yeah, Queen were meant to be on the show, but they cancelled at the last minute because Freddie Mercury had a sore throat. Oh, no. They got the pistols on purely uh, wow. somebody there said, what a mistake. Oh, it was just a completely random, well, what about the Sex Pistols? They're, they're getting a lot of headlines. They'd be good. And so they dragged them onto the show and they spent, I think they spent the whole day. There's a really good documentary. Well, it's not a documentary. It's like a film made about it. I can't remember what it's called, but it was on um, Sky Arts. Okay. And it gives a really accurate portrayal. And they basically drank all day before they yeah. went on the show, yeah. but yeah. they were given the alcohol by the BBC. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. As was Bill Grundy. You know, they yeah. all drank all day. <laughs> they were and, all and, smashed, and the yeah. other, I mean, the other thing was they were on the show with spiky um, coloured hair and the girls were wearing swastika. I mean, it was just like, a, it was not what you'd expect for an afternoon tea time show for families no. after school. <laughs> no. And, and a year later, the Sex Pistols released an album, a song, sorry, from, from Nevermind the Bollocks, for the Queen, because it was her silver anniversary. And the yeah. song went, the song started with God Save the Queen, a fascist regime. Yeah, we made you a moron, potential H-bomb. There you go. That was the first four lines of the song. Yeah. To, to mark her anniversary, her jubilee, whatever. So, it so. Was it so when Ollie says that that, that that album really changed him, you can see why it would have, uh, what's the yeah. word, you know, like ignited a few oh, ideas. Yeah. Like <laughs> so you, you're going to, to school in, 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 in Lincolnshire, is it? Yeah, Lincolnshire, in Stanford, yeah. Yeah, and so do you finish your schooling there? Do you complete um, it all there? I, I got my O-levels and then promptly left and went to... <laughs> I went to to technical college. Oh where yes, I remember those. <laughs> I did three of the most useful. Well, no, three A levels, and I did art, sociology, and communications. Well, I did communications. <laughs> yeah. um, which was I don't, and we were told you cannot fail. Got a C, and I, they were said, "How did you manage to get a C?" You know you could get a B just by turning up and yeah. I, I passed my sociology but I also passed my art A level um, well, I got you, you know the funny thing about art is I can't think of a band in that time that didn't go to art school you know oh, that didn't have some 
they all had some passing, even if it's only for six months, with art school. There was some linkage. I think it goes back to Bowie, where everyone yeah. just felt you had to go down that path of using art with music. I mean, it was so it's very interesting. Yeah. But it's interesting you studied it because, you know, the other subjects I could see from the conversations we've had together, your background, but the art is slightly more um, a personal thing, let's put it like that. It's not, it doesn't come out so much. So it's no. interesting that you also did it. I, I've always, I've always had, I've always felt that there's a really close connection between art and music. Um, a lot of the bands I, when I was in that sort of teenage state, a lot of the bands I really liked were bands like Conflict, yeah. who yeah, were yeah, extremely yeah. political, but also <coughs> incredible art. and Amazing the, art. Um, and it's really influenced me as an artist, uh, that style of art. I really enjoy kind of creating things. Well, I just want to praise that a little bit as well, Ollie. Sorry, I, I feel like I'm doing this all the time. I do apologise, but... But for people that don't know those... No, 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 you can't you have to, I mean, what you have to understand is the album covers that they made were like... It's really difficult to explain. that They folded them up themselves and they all had things like anarchist symbols and stuff on and huge amounts of writing about, for example, Thatcher in the Falklands and things yeah. like this. I mean, it wasn't just like buying an album where you just get the cover. Now, it was like literally a fold-open one that you every, time, every yeah. page you opened up had a different bit of information on it. It was almost like they'd done it at home. They hadn't even gone to a studio. They just literally folded these things over. And, and in the middle was um, their, their symbol, the, the crash symbol, for example. Yeah. So it was like, wow, what an amazingly unique way. I, don't, I can't remember anything that's done it like that way sort of since and before, where it looked like they were literally doing it from their yeah. own yard. You know, so it was quite, quite imaginative. And like you said, very artistic. Very, I mean, some of the yeah. symbols on it were, were amazing. Absolutely amazing. So... Um, I can see what you mean. Um, were you playing bands by then? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the first band I was in was when I was about 13. Um, oh, wow, okay. And before that, we, me and some friends at school had a make made up band, and we were a punk <laughs> band, and we used to run around the playground shouting at people. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was great fun. Uh, Brilliant. <laughs> that, was, that was my introduction to being in a band, running around the playground shouting at people and then being beaten up by sixth formers because we were shouting at <laughs> And this is what happens when Thatcher takes milk away. Yeah, it's her fault. She created it. <laughs> well, um, I mean, to be fair to Ollie, there was quite a movement of a new wave at the time. So, yeah. so like, everyone wanted to be in a band because, okay, Unlike kind of what we have now and what we had before that, you literally gigs can be played anywhere, and yeah. you could literally do a gig in the school playground, for example. So, so it wasn't impossible to start a band and play somewhere. Mm. You know what I mean? So, so it was like people were doing it because it's like, what about the accessibility? And I can only compare it to playing football. So, you know, like how everyone plays in the street. And yeah. It was like that. And before and afterwards, it's much much harder. You had to literally go through agents and, and professionalism. This was like you could play anywhere. Really yeah. play anywhere. We called the Gateway, and the Gateway had a cellar bar, which was literally a cellar with a very small <laughs> bar in it. And they used to let us play there. I mean, we were all underage, but they used to let us have gigs there, and they never used to charge us. And we used to charge like fifty p on the door, and 
kids that played there. And most of our Friday and Saturday nights were spent in the gateway cellar where we would try to get up enough money to buy ourselves like a half pint of lager, which we would be served and then told very unceremoniously to go down, take that downstairs and don't come up again. <laughs> there was no air conditioning right. at all. Because it's illegal. Yeah, it, it's yeah, yeah. We, we, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we we weren't allowed to drink, but we did, and we never got really got drunk. Um, no, no, absolutely. But there was something about having that having a beer while you watch the bands. Um, yeah, and there was some. I mean, I played there in five or six different bands, but there's some some great bands kind of debuted down there. Um, Ollie, was you are you too? Because you're slightly younger than me. Are you too young to remember when people used to be gobbing at geeks? I I've seen what? it, but I I don't remember oh, it. You didn't experience it, okay? I never. Sorry, experienced uh, it, no. sorry, Jermaine. I meant spitting at geeks. <laughs> yeah. So right. when you went to a gig in the seventies, like punk rock, I'm talking about, not Queen or something. Like that, when you went to punk rock in the seventies, it was in venues like Ollie's talking about, really cramped, small. Everyone had leather jackets and safety pins and spiked hair and. I mean, you probably imagine you'd probably set fire to the whole place because there was so much stuff in people's hair and everything. Yeah. And and the the way you appreciated the band was the, the more you liked them, the more you spat at them. So you got the thing. So people, the dance at the time was called pogoing, where you literally jump hands by your side and jump up and down, like being on a pogo stick. And then the, then you would try and spit at the band. And of course, you end up with everyone spitting at everyone because if you spit at the person in front of you, they're going to turn around and spit at you. So it became like the whole gig was there was phlegm everywhere. What the yeah. hell is wrong with people? Now, this <laughs> was a specific era and a specific way of being. Of the like, it hasn't happened, it it hasn't happened before or after. Sure, mate. Right. I'm you sorry. know what? I tell you why I mentioned this to you and Ollie. I'll tell you why I mentioned because I worked with some children in the past who kept talking about if they were footballers, they don't mind breaking their legs, but they hate, they would never have someone spit at them. They wouldn't tolerate that. What? No, I'm saying some kids I work with used to say about professional footballers. You know when there's a professional footballer? Right. Sometimes one of the footballers spits at one of the other ones. And, the, and these kids are going, there's no way I'd tolerate that. I'd kill him if he did that to me. You know, I don't mind my leg being broken, but I would not tolerate someone spitting at me. And it just reminded me of the times when we used to went to gigs and it was perfectly normal to do that. Perfectly normal. And you just left the building covered in flesh. It was oh god, yeah. I, I, so I'm asking I, because I, I, I mean I'm asking <laughs> Ollie that because I'm asking Ollie that because the venues he's talking about was exactly the kind of place where it used to happen. You know, you go downstairs and it was very cramped and people poking into each other and spitting everywhere, and literally you came out full of sweat and 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 phlegm, basically. That sounds like the worst time ever. Well, for but people who went through it, it was it was the best time ever. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was. You didn't think we didn't have concerns like you do today about the consequences of blaming at people. You just wouldn't have those those thoughts. It just wasn't. Yeah, no. You know, like maybe people, people say today, oh, you know, when I was a kid, we used to roll around in the mud and get cuts and carry on, and that's literally the lifestyle people had. Mm. Jermaine and I spoke the other day about footballers. You know, back in those days when they kicked lumps out of each other, they hit a heavy ball and everything, and. You can't compare that to today because everything's so health and safety today. Yeah, no, yeah. And we had none of that. Nothing. I mean, people literally learned as they went along. Yeah. You know, <laughs> literally, with everything you were doing. No, everything you were doing. They learned. If it wasn't I mean, for your generation, we wouldn't be where we are today. Well, you know what? There's a whole host of things. I mean, even when you talk about knife crime, I don't know, Ollie, do you remember when people used to carry Stanley knives? Yes, unfortunately. 
I mean, it was just it was just a it was a cultural thing, you know, like the, the way that people do it today. I mean, mm. certainly football fans would all carry a standing line. Yeah. And then there was the thing of the credit cards where they put it in your, in your mouth and they give you a Glasgow sort of kiss thing. Yeah. There were so many different things that we learned as we went along. No one had a clue what they were doing. Well, obviously some people did, the ones who started it, but everyone else did. Um, I think it was that kind of you experience things. Yes, yes, exactly that. you kind of made a judgment about them. Um, often quite a long time after you've... <laughs> I can remember being in. I think it was in Leeds, and I would have been in around the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. To Leeds um, to to watch City play, and oh, yeah, yeah. <coughs> I really never even exposed to football violence because. Well, well, you went to the worst place for that then, didn't you? Well, yeah, it was a baptism with fire, an away match at Leeds. And after the game... I mean, Leeds I'm... were brutal. Leeds were brutal in those days, brutal. Oh, they were. I mean, they were like, you know, yeah, that was it the Leicester baby squad and the Chelsea. And all, it was, yeah, it was yeah, awful. yeah. Um, was this the full cantonment? That's lovely. What's that? It's beautiful. That's my phone. Oh, OK. Was your new album? It's lovely. <laughs> oh, it'd be quite good actually, wouldn't it? If that was that was an yeah. album, I should have made that go quiet. It's all right, Jermaine. What were you asking? Um, what was I asking? Oh, God. Um, you said was that before? Or I didn't hear what you said. Ollie was saying, you know, when you had all the sort of the different firms of bands, and you said, "Is it before something?" I didn't catch what you said. Sorry. Uh, it's gone now. All right, never mind. <laughs> so, just to preface what you're saying, in those days, you had, it was the height of football hoodies. And so, each club had a firm, a group of guys who would go home and away to attack yeah. the other fans. And Leeds was one of the most notorious because um, they were the biggest club in Yorkshire. And Yorkshire has always had a history in this country of being proud of where they are and proud of their fighting prowess. And it was a pretty rough place to go in and out. Especially if you were from Manchester, because the, the rivalry between Manchester, anyone from Manchester and Leeds was quite across the Pennines. It was quite a, a big rivalry. Have I set the oh, scene yeah, well was, there, yeah. Ollie? Yeah. You so you've got to Leeds. Have what set happened? the scene incredibly well, Mark. We, well, so the game finished, and it, it, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was a draw. It was like a nil nil ball draw. And me and my friend were walking from uh, Ellen Road to the town where we were going to catch a bus back to Manchester and we were walking through the town and it was really quiet and we went sort of we did a little cut between some shops and there was coming towards us were a group of Leeds supporters and they weren't saying anything they weren't doing anything and then all of a sudden we were just getting battered and um you know, in, in true, in, in, you know, when you tell these stories, you know, we're saying true fashion, we stood and thought, no, we just ran. Of course. Uh, as fast as we could and got on the bus with various cuts and bruises and um, feeling pretty sorry for herself. And this this was, this was literally about 1989, 1990. Uh, well, yeah. we're 1989. I can remember getting on this bus expecting, um, expecting sort of comradeship and, um, <laughs> in support and the bus just emptied as about 
10 or 11 guys just ran off the bus to kick the living lights out of these guys who just kicked the living lights out of the bus. And the bus driver just sort of sat there and then they came back on and said, oh, we battered them and they had a few cuts and bruises. And the bus driver just went, we're ready to go now, lads. Shut the doors. <laughs> you know what? It was, it was like that every time. And, and I've got to say, the idea of running away, it, it always makes me laugh because because I've spent a lot of time now working with gangs and things. The people that tell you the stories are only here to tell you the stories because they ran away. That's the yeah. reality. Are they you know, not so anyone... running away? No, no, but I'm saying, you know, like people act like, oh, you know, it was really hot. Like, we did this. Listen, if they're here, they ran... at some point they run away. Because yeah. when you're outnumbered and you're getting kicked, if you don't run away, you're not going to you're not going to be around to tell the story. That's no, the absolutely. I, I, I never understood. It's one of the things I never understood the sort of the football violence. I never got that. I can understand the going to the match and, and, and singing the songs and and forwards between two opposing teams, supporters. I totally get that. You know, it's that escape, it's your part yeah, of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that sort of that crowd, it's part of you. And but I never got the fact that they had to take it further and and some people went I suppose it's because some people went for the violence more than the match, but I used oh, to big time, big time. Um I mean, there was a time, Ollie, when in London, when my weekends would literally be going to a punk gig, getting beaten up by skinheads, yeah. <laughs> going to Arsenal, being beaten up by Tottenham, and going to Carnival and being beaten up by gangs of, of black youth. I mean, it was just literally every weekend that was happening. Yeah. And I didn't I w want to be in a gang. I didn't want to be part of any of those sort of cultures. I just wanted to do my own thing. But I refused to be put off by... People say, don't go there and don't do this. Because it's like, no, where's the fun in that? I want to just see what's going on. Yeah, um, you, you, yeah, definitely. But you do get battered. I mean, that was the reality. I've got, <laughs> yeah. If you see me in reality, I've got a flat nose. And there's a reason why. I mean, I didn't, I'm not a fighter. But I don't like running away from situations in terms of, like, if I'm surrounded, I'm not going to sort of, like, plead for something. I'm just going to take it and then walk away if I can and then take it from there. But it was it was, it was, was constant in that period. You, and, and there was a period... It's probably the time you're talking about, but people stopped even wearing their identification, like their flag, their scarves, and flags, and things. Yeah. So you didn't know who was who, and it wouldn't you wouldn't know until it literally kicked off. Yeah, I do remember seeing that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a bad it, period. It was but bad. some of the football was also amazing. I oh think. yeah. <laughs> you know, and that that was the upside to. Um, well, you know, you know when you were listening to the Pistols album at your at your family friend's house? Yeah. Did you watch the football of that period as well? Because that was an amazing time. Yeah, well, my, my dad then was a big Arsenal supporter. Oh, what a lovely man. What a lovely, lovely guy. So <laughs> I grew up with Pat Jennings, Liam Brady, Graham oh, Rick, yeah. Alan Sunderland. Yeah. You know, I remember the 1979 Cup final at Wembley. What um, a game. What a game. Know, and the, those players, they're still, even though I kind of, I mean, I, I switched my allegiance because yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. The, I was only eight, 18 and I worked as a volunteer in a children's home when the, one of the older guys there took me to Main Road and I just fell in love with the place and, okay, and the okay. team. Um, but I still love that Arsenal team and they were such an important part of my life. Um, but I was thinking of, I was thinking of, there were certain episodes in that period which are infamous even today, where, for example, Francis Lee had a fight with Norman Hunter. Yeah, yeah. And on the pitch, like they, they, it was like a boxing match. And, and Francis Lee was about 
four in four or five inches or feet smaller than Norman Hunter. Yeah. And he got a bit battered. But he said to him, I'll meet you after the game in any alley, anywhere, and we'll carry this on. And there was all these sort of things going on, these kind of um because there was every team had a hard man as well. Yes. So like for example, it was Peter Story and um Leeds it was Billy Bremner and every team had one of those you know like you, every team yeah. had one man that was like you could kick him a thousand times he'd still be standing and yeah. so when you had a big game let's say Chelsea are playing Leeds so Billy Bremner's playing against the Chelsea hard man I can't remember who it was now they're playing against each other and they're kicking lumps out of each other and the fans are loving it because they want their hard man you know. to prove he's harder than them so the football took a different um, direction in those days because it was also about watching all that side of things as well. Yeah. There's a lot of that, a lot of on pitch or off the ball action, I should say, really, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> oh, you put it very well. That's exactly right. That's exactly oh. right. The, the one. So hold player... on. So... Oh, sorry. No, go on. Sorry, Ollie. Go on. No, carry on. I was going to say the one player I remember from that era was Joe Jordan. Oh yeah, yeah. Played for Man United, yeah. and he had less than most. I've got, got a feeling he played for Leeds as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. He played from Leeds to Man United, so he was. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, he was a traitor. really unpopular guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, Leeds, did, did Leeds kind of become some sort of academy for Man United? Uh, I know they had You can't, you well, can't say that in Leeds. Kind of, Jermaine, you can't say yeah. that in Leeds. <laughs> listen, listen. I'm just saying because there were teams that just seemed like an academy for the much bigger teams. It's funny, Jermaine, because I think I think you're probably right because there are a you mentioned Cantona, fantastic yeah. player, one of my yeah, favorites. yeah, yeah. Uh, there are uh, Lee Bowyer's another one. Um, yeah. Oh yes. yeah, a lot of Lee Dixon. He played for Leeds. There have been mm. a lot of players who have gone from Leeds to Man United, and. There, could, there, there was always a kind of Leeds were always the sort of when they were in the first division when they were in, when the top flight they were they were kind of the they were a bit like Everton I suppose yeah yeah um, and the really good players like Cantona would it was almost sort of like you resigned to the fact that Cantona wouldn't be at Leeds very long yeah. and I think the really good players then would go to clubs like Man United Arsenal Chelsea. Um, so I think Leeds probably is a bit of a training ground because they were a hard team to play against and they did bring along some really, really good players. So I, I mean, think... some of those players, I mean, to be fair, some of those players came from other clubs, Leeds poached yeah. them, used them in the Premiership or the First Division, and then other teams took, like United were notorious. There was a period on the beginning of Ferguson where they went out and bought every star striker of any rival team they had. Yeah. So they, they literally went out. And, so who was their biggest threat? Newcastle, right? We'll buy their striker. We'll buy Andy yeah. Cole. Andy and they Cole. literally they, and they literally went to every club and bought the you know, the team that was second or third in the league to them to make sure they stayed at the top. So they did that quite notoriously. But I remember Leeds. I've, I've got a feeling I might be wrong, but I thought Cantona came from Chipper went to Leeds. Um, I can't. I might, I might be wrong about that, but I, I seem it to remember him coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he didn't come through their academy like that. He was no. He was poached as well. Now, there was a team called Crew. I don't know if you ever got to see them. Crew Alexander. Alexander. Yeah. So they were the notorious trading on club. Everyone's gone through them. So yeah. they they had a manager that had been around for 40 years or something, uh, Eddie Grady or someone. And he'd been around for years and he took players to Crew 
like youngsters, train them, and then Liverpool would come in, Man United would come in, Leeds would come in, and take the best players he had. So they never ever came out of the division they ring because they always got poached. And the same thing happened to West Ham. I mean, virtually the whole England team at one point came from West Ham and went to places like Man United, Leeds, yeah. etc. So, I mean, there's a history of certain clubs being, for want of a better word, feeders, because yeah. everyone knew they had the academies yeah. that would become something Cantona, special. Cantona came from Nimes to Leeds. Oh, did he? Okay. Oh, right. okay. And I think I'm thinking of, what's his name then? Um, who was the other one, the Italian guy that went to West Ham? The Canio. I think the Canio. Yes, I think. Yeah, I think you're right with that one. Paolo but I'm just, but it's just like they they have a passage, a little passage when they come from abroad. They go to somewhere and then usually yeah. Leeds and then United. That's the sort of path a lot of them tread. Let's put it Not like anymore. Uh, well, Leeds aren't that team anymore, unfortunately. Mm. Then because they gambled I, a lot on always being in Europe. You remember when David O'Leary was there? They gambled every year to being in the top four or top three. It was then. And one year yeah. they, they came fifth and they they hadn't the budget for it, so they collapsed, went down two divisions. Yeah, and they've only right. just come back to the premiership now. So that's slightly different. But what were you doing? So so you we we were we left you at your A levels. What happened uh, next? I then I was meant to go to art college, but I, okay, I, yeah, yeah. I took a year out and I I went up north to Hello? Ali, I think we've lost you for a second. I'm not sure if you can hear okay, us. Okay, yeah, I can't hear him. But, um... Hello, Ali? Come on, Ali. I can, st- I can see that he's still here. Jermaine, I know you won't find this interesting because you're from the Midlands, but I find it interesting when Ali says... He- well, I did voluntary work for the children. Ali, 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 we, we just lost you. You've only just come back. Yeah. So I got offered a job in this children's home where I was working as a volunteer. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I got off. I got four hundred pounds a month and a bed set, which to, wow. which I thought, oh, I'll have some of this. And um, so I worked there and didn't go to art college. And then after a few months, the children's home closed, and I was left unemployed in Manchester. Wow. So I I remember being in a pub. And this old man was in there chatting away to him. And um, he said, oh, you want to get a job at Asylum, lad? At the, uh, what they used to call the Asylum, which was Parkside Hospital in Macclesfield. Oh, my good Lord. So I started working there as an auxiliary. And then through a quirk of fate or whatever, I did my nurse training. Wow. And so I qualified as a registered uh, as a registered mental nurse in 93 but being in Manchester at that time this is another string to my bow um, the whole Manchester scene I was just about to ask you about that yeah yeah Yeah. so we used to go to the Hacienda and because we were students we didn't have a lot of money so what we would do is we'd go to the Hacienda and we had either enough money to get in or enough money to buy drinks we couldn't do both so what we used to do is we used to get there early when the bands were playing and help them carry all their gear in and set up their gear. <laughs> and that got us in. And that meant we could have a few pints because yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, everybody wanted to go to the Hacienda. So we used to go to the Hacienda and band on the wall. Um, and we ended up being quite a regular fixture. Which wow. 
we used to effectively we were the unofficial road crew for bands like um uh sort of north side happy mondays stone roses because they were all just they were all just sort of gaining traction then yeah yeah and i thought i like this but i do need to finish my nursing so i finished my nursing off i got my nursing uh, registration and i then signed on an agency at a secure unit and carried wow. on working with the bands so i would work for a few weeks at the secure unit as a nurse and then i'd go off for a few months um as a as a kind of like a, a member of the crew for, for so for, hold on ollie that's quite a, a swinging lifestyle i mean to do a secure unit's tough work and then some next weekend you're doing playing or being around bands yeah did you cope did you cope with the balance of your mental frailty around that um yeah i i i really enjoyed working with the bands and i quite enjoyed working in the secure unit okay okay um so you know there were, there were two very different challenges yeah i always saw so. the nursing as a sort of if this doesn't work out i can do a bit of nursing uh, i really enjoyed working with bands and i loved doing the festivals in the summer um and it must have been a bit of a grafter because they kept they kept taking me back onto the uh into the hospital and i oh, really okay and I'd yeah. go got any work and they'd be like yeah sure come back we'll give you three weeks it was you know but what what i what i really struggled with if i'm honest with you was the culture of the hospitals out of work um it, okay it was a very heavy sort of it was a very much kind of lad culture sort of drinking darts pool yeah, yeah. Well, that, in those days that was it wasn't it that yeah. was the lifestyle i didn't and i didn't like it i couldn't i think of anything worse than going to a pub and playing pool i'm not very good at it for a start oh, and you know i mean i do play now and i quite enjoy it but it was that whole sort of lifestyle and it was very misogynistic and yeah 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 and but also I, just, I mean just to just to, to explain to people if you for example if your daughters are listening um there wasn't internet or anything like that in those days so you know your your options outside of work were fairly limited there was music there was football there was the pub culture and there wasn't yeah. an awful lot else i mean i don't the other question that springs to my mind is what age were you when you first started traveling um when i first started traveling i would have been probably about properly i'd say i would have been about 21 2021 and that was to where well the first place i ever went abroad to was spain Wow. Okay. I think me too. I think you're probably yeah. we all did that. I think in those days, yeah. Where did you go in Spain? Um, I went to oh god, Mallorca. Okay, yeah, that was a pretty mm -hmm. conventional place to go, wasn't it? It really? was incredibly conventional. It was just like being in England with the sun and the fish and chips. Yeah, and yeah fish absolutely. And chips. It was, <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't really like that, but when it's not like, Spain. No, no. I mean, Spain's an amazing country. Um, yeah. I have some. I have some stories from Spain. Yeah, um, I remember going to no, Madrid. Please tell us. That's what you're here for. <laughs> I went mm. to Madrid once, um, and a friend of mine, she had a she had an apartment in Spain. She she is well, she wasn't. I presume still is. She's a doctor, 
Okay. And we were really good friends when I was training. And she said, oh, why don't you come out to Spain? Um, I'm a doctor now. I've got, I was, I had some time off and she had this flat in Madrid that she kept. I think she'd inherited it. So she said, oh, I'll be there this day. So we'll meet up. We could stay in the flat. We could have a really good time. I'll show you around. She spoke fluent Spanish. Absolutely amazing um, girl. So I flew out to Madrid and got to the flat. A phone message saying, really sorry couldn't get a hold with you um i've i've had to stay on for an extra week in work because um something happened you'll be fine everything you need's in the flat explore the local culture i'll see you in a week's time so i was thinking fantastic that's great brilliant i've i'm, I'm on my in spain you made it and <laughs> this is it this is the life i've always wanted yeah yeah totally what i didn't realize is that i don't speak any spanish and where the flat was, nobody spoke any English, including people in shops, supermarkets, restaurants. Wow, what a crash course in Spanish. I had to communicate non-verbally for a week. Uh, and being then, I was still... Also, I was vegetarian. So Spain isn't big on vegetarians. Not, don't, don't it, wasn't, it, it wasn't then. It is now. It wasn't then. <laughs> but yeah, everything was everything was very meat orientated. So oh, I didn't hugely. do very well the first week. The second week, when um, Miranda, Miranda arrived, I ate like a king um, because I, she would tell me what the stuff was, and the whole world of culinary excellence opened oh, up yeah. to me. But that first week, it was sort of. Oh, it was it was brilliant, but also it was sort of uh, it makes you realise how vulnerable you are and how you're not really, um, you know, you can be brought down to earth with a bump very quickly. Um, I remember you, you reminded me of a story. I was in Mexico, and um, again, I'd only learned a couple of words of Spanish, but I knew because I was a vegetarian as well. And I said, um, I went to the cafe and I said, uh, "No como carne." I, I don't eat meat because that was the phrase I had to use to make sure I didn't get meat. And they served me chicken. Yeah. But I didn't have the Spanish to have the discussion about why are you serving me chicken if I don't eat meat. <laughs> and they don't see it as meat, they see it as poultry. Yeah. Right. But, you, but you'd have to know Spanish to understand that. I didn't have any Spanish. And I was like, I'm just looking at the guy going, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's just looking at me going, what are you complaining about? Like, you, I couldn't give you meat, now I'm giving you this and you can't even eat this. So we oh, had the most... Oh, like yeah. an hour of miscommunication completely. But I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I remember going to Spain back in those days and I used to go, I hated flying at the time. I would go by um, Eurolines, the uh, autobus thing from London. To, it took 24 hours to get to, say, Barcelona. Yeah. And we'd go through Paris and everything. And it would take like a day, literally, through the countryside and everything. Mm. And then you get off the bus and not a word of Spanish. And it was just hard work. Yeah. Really hard work. <laughs> but I think it's good because it, it, it gives you a sense of perspective yeah. when you're when you're sort of challenged because you know we're quite sort of you know we, we can all communicate and there's big tesco's and you know you take all these things for granted but when you're put in a situation where that's oh, yeah. Um, yeah but also the other thing is like, when people come here and they can't speak english uh, i understand that now from being in that situation it's yeah. really difficult when you can't say the most fundamental thing or the other thing was learning a phrase like you know where is the toilet and then not having a clue what they've said back to you Yes. Yeah. You know, because you don't understand anything that they said back at all. You mm. can say, where is the toilet? And they go, okay, yeah, yeah, there is one. And then whatever they say after that, you have not a clue. Not a clue. <laughs> it's, um, it's humbling. Very humbling. Very humbling. Well. It's, it's necessary. And 
I think it's also necessary to get out there and uh, I, I, I've always felt that instead of things like national service and your people have anything, well, we've got to make young people strong and resilient and we've got to make them do this and we've got to get, I think what we should do is that every young person, person should have to travel. Yeah, yeah. They should have to have a year. Definitely agree. Definitely agree. I mean, there was that program, wasn't there, where they took kids from London and put them in like poorer countries, like for example, say Jamaica. They actually live with a family there, and it was yeah. every after the every one of them, the kids would say, "What an amazing experience! I've just learned so much." And so, when I go home now, I'm going to be a different person with my family and everything because they yeah. just taken so much for granted because they hadn't been challenged on anything properly, and suddenly yeah. they were being challenged. Um, so I get that totally. So you, so you're 21, you've done that. What's your next country after that that you went to? Um, gosh, I've been all over the place. Um, I've been to. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think of a chronology here. <laughs> Go on, um, we'd love one. Go on. A lot of that time was spent in Europe because that's okay. where all the big festivals were. So you'd be places like Denmark and Germany, Holland. So when you went to the festivals, are you playing there? Are you roading no, there? No, no. Um, I was, um, well, I ended up uh, as what they call a sky monkey, which is basically those people you see climbing up and down the staging. Um, oh, wow, you did that? Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I did, did that and uh, it, was, it was bloody hard work. Um, I but doing that. going to going around Europe, I I sort of went and fell a lot. When I I particularly I sort of I fell in love with Germany. I must say. Okay. Okay. Um, and and also Holland, Germany and Holland. I think two of my favourite countries in Europe. Um, mm. Outside of Europe, it would have to be the two A's, as in Africa and Australia. And I know Africa is a continent. Um, and it, I, I loved, and I still, I still, you know, I loved Australia. Um, so where were you in Australia? Um, I've been to Brisbane, Canberra, Sydney. So you're yeah. all East Coast, all East Coast really, yeah? Yeah. yeah. I um, did the same. I used to live around those areas. And so I, I, I'd go and stay with them. Um, so when I was about 25, Ollie, I tried to, I worked for six months in Sydney. And I wanted to go around the whole of Australia hitchhiking in a month. Good luck. Yeah, I, I got <laughs> as far as, I don't know if you know this place, but I got as far as Cape Tribulation. I've heard of it. I've not been there. Yeah. So it's kind of north of, of um, Brisbane. It's kind of, it's like one of the furthest places you go north on the East Coast. We mm. were trying to head for the Northern Territories, but we ran out of yeah. time. Because again, you know, hitching and you're not sure where you're staying every night and things like that. No. But it was like, again, a real eye opener to Australia. Yeah, the culture. Um, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but I got invited so many times from working in a factory to to go kangaroo shooting at the weekend, roo shooting at the weekend. But people wanted to go at the weekend and spend their weekends going into the bush and shooting kangaroos. I, I never got invited on a kangaroo shoot. Um, I do remember <laughs> renting a car. Okay. I saying to me, um, "Oh, if you're driving at night, watch out for the kangaroos because they're jumping." Yeah, yeah. Through. But it's okay. You can kill thirteen before you have to declare it. And exactly. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and you have what? those bars on the front of the cars, don't you, to kill them? They have these really, like, almost like tank-like bars at the front. Of yeah, the they have one four by fours. Yeah, they're cool. There's a name for them: bull bars. Bull bars. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they and they're there on every vehicle, so that because because at, at night it's like 
hitting racks because there's so many of them on the road. Yeah. Uh, and they're huge. But I mean, these people want it as a sport. So, so cool to go and shoot. I said, I can't be doing that. That's not. No. No, that, no, no I mean, wouldn't. Like, we, don't, we don't do that sort of thing. You know? So, you know, <laughs> then you get all the pommy comments, you know, you, you fucking pommies always. You get yeah. all that all the time, you know. <laughs> where, did, where did you go in Africa? In Africa? Well, the where main country in Africa is Kenya because my two daughters are um, mixed race and their mum is Kenyan. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Uh, but I've been to, I mean, I've in Africa, I've been to South Africa, I've been to Durban um, and Johannesburg, as you should. Um, I've been to Joburg, yeah. I've been to, uh, I've, I've been over to Harare in Zimbabwe. I mean, I stayed a long time there, but yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, when I say I've been to, it's literally like when you go to the Isle of Wight on the hovercraft, have a cup of tea and come back. Oh, okay, okay. okay. I went to Zimbabwe because a friend of mine had left the UK to start a business in Harare. And because I was in Africa, you know, Africans have a very different perception of travel. Oh, to, yeah. Uh, totally. us English. And for me to trip over to Zimbabwe was nothing. Absolutely. Um, I, I I flew out and I went there and I saw him and uh, it was a beautiful place. But yeah, Kenya, I've, I've spent so many so much time in Kenya and it is one of my favourite places. I love going to um, Nairobi and all the places around there because I, I just feel it's, as a people, it's zero bullshit in Kenya. I mean, I fell in love with Lamu. I thought Lamu was an amazing place. Yeah. I mean, such an amazing island. Um, they've only got one car there. It's just, it was an amazing place. Um, and and it was like, once you've been to Nairobi, which is quite a city, yeah. it's like being in London again. And, and uh, Mombasa even, as well, even yeah. in its own way, it was similar. But going to uh, Lambeth, the little island, you get a little dow across and everything. And it was just an amazing place. Mm. Absolutely amazing place. But I must confess, I much prefer the mentality of people in Tanzania. There was something warmer about the people. I mean, again, it's no bullshit, but there was something about the community. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I can't even put it into words, but it was much more like they look after the poorest and the richest in the same way. Whereas in Kenya, it's like everyone looks after their own sort of thing. There is a lot of that. Yeah, I think it's... it's, Somebody once described Kenya um, as beautifully tragic. And yeah, when I first that, heard yeah. that, I was sort of, I, I thought, no, that's, 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 that's pretty unpleasant. But when I thought about it, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing country with amazing people. And to have lived there, you see that sort of beauty and that sort of the warmth, but also there's a, there's a very, it's almost like it's been traumatized. And of course that was all yes. to do with um, colonization and, 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 and the, the after effects with Moy as well. With um, yeah, you know that the whole the whole legacy because he he was very pro Britain and pro the West. So yeah. he kind of carried on his own little independent firm of, of he, colonization. He did. He very much did. Um, and um, that it, it's it's awful to think that because um, I think I'd like. I'd, uh, David Bedeals, when, when he was much younger, did, did a comedy show and he talked about being beaten up by the police. Um, and he said, You're he not talking about the, what was it called? Him and Skinner, wasn't it? No, it was way before that. It was oh, way before that. Okay. Experience. And he did, a, he started to do stand up and he was, yes, talking about, that's what I was thinking, what you meant. Sorry, that's the one I thought you meant. Yeah. He, God, he talked about like... being beaten up by the police and he said, like, um, oh, We've been beaten up by the police and some skinheads showed up. 
and they then beat us up. And I thought, well, actually, that's a bit like what happened in Kenya because you, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. white colonial regime, and then that went and like independence, uh, the well, twelfth, twelfth of December, nineteen sixty-three, yeah, um, yeah. great day in Kenya when you go out there, it's a big celebration. And then they sort of had the independence and they had uh, Yomo Kenyatta, who was the president, who was very liberal, very forward thinking, um, very progressive. Yeah. We still talk about him, don't they? Yeah. Which is uh, interesting. But um, yeah. and then Moy came in and literally reverted to how it was when the white colon colonialists were there. And it must have been horrible yeah. to have had that taste of independence and to be a and then to have this dictator. And, and also, I remember in, in London, it was a real experience to bump into the Indian community. And a lot of them didn't come from India. They'd come from Kenya. Yeah. And he'd kick them all out. He'd sort yeah. of like, he'd have persecuted the Asian community and could kick them all out of Kenya. Yeah. And that was a form of his sort of control, you know. It's a bit like so, Armin as well. I mean, he did that. Yes. Armin. Yeah, the same. Yeah, yeah, totally. They were both. And which is why, um, what's his name, was more interesting, Nerere in, in uh, Tanzania. Because he did his home, a homegrown form of socialism in Ke in Tanzania, right. so that's why there was that's why there was always that divide between Kenya and Tanzania because they're virtually yeah. brothers brothers and sisters. But the form of government was so different to Moyes, and you see the difference in the way the communities respond to things. So, <laughs> yeah, if you're in Kenya, someone steals from a shop, there's a good chance they're going to get their hand cut off. Whereas in Tanzania, they'd probably take them to school and educate them to not do that sort of thing again. Yeah. It was such a big difference in the way that they responded to community needs. It was, uh, yeah. Traveling through it was an amazing experience. You know, really amazing. Um, you know what? I'm just looking at the time. We oh, have a couple of minutes left. Um, yeah. I think we will have to have part two. We we're going to have to. I, yeah, I don't we, we've yeah. barely scratched the surface. We've barely yeah, scratched no, the surface. I know. And we um, haven't even talked about the football. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, there's there's lots of conversations that we can have around the football. Um, maybe we should do that before the game. Um, just That's to interesting, get... Interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, and see how we get on. Maybe a few hours before the game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what we could do is we do a football special on Sunday and then we could do next week, we could do part two with Ollie about his life and everything. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Sunday. Um, I might have to get back to you about Sunday because my uh, my girls are down for the weekend and I'm trying to work out whether or not I take them back early or late and because um, I'm not missing the game for anything. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll have to get back to you, but I, I I'm sure I can I'm sure I can find a bit of time. Well, you can just find, find there is some potential um, there is some potential availability Saturday morning if that helps. But we'll we'll have a chat offline. Um, yeah, yeah, and sort that out. But uh, I could even get some dogs. They could, uh, yeah. It's, you know what? It's been an absolute honour and a pleasure. I really appreciate. Um, I mean, just for our audience, just to let them know that. You haven't even scratched the surface of the great man yet. I mean, Ollie is a legend, and we—it's a bit like having breakfast, and we haven't even had lunch and supper with the legend yet. So oh, be, be prepared to hear a lot more. Incredibly no, no, it's true. It's true. But I'm saying, be prepared to hear a lot more. Is what I'm saying to the audience, because we've just scratched the surface, really. 
Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, I must say. Absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. We like having legendary people on here. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that we do is try and match it with the name of the show. So, you know, we think Naomi Osaka is quite a legend in her own right. And we try and get people to match that uh, sort of level. And glad to say we've done that today. But, but like, this, you're the only one so far we've done an hour and we haven't even begun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. But it's been fun. It's been fun and it's been informative as well. Um, well, Ollie, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, no, thank you, Jermaine and Mark. It's been really, really great fun and I can't wait to do it again. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, we can't wait to meet to, to do it. We'd love to do it again with you. And, you know, because very few people are like you that they, they don't, they never mind the bollocks. So it's good to have <laughs> you here, man. <laughs> never mind the bollocks, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, that's all we've got time for today on the Curious Anarchy podcast. This has been Brunch with Naomi Osaka with Ollie. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Good night. Thank you very much.